and welcome to Fine Finds and Wine. I'm your host, Karis Pixie, and each week I'll be giving you all an insight into the behind the scenes of our favorite beverage, wine. I'd love for you to use this podcast platform as a winery guide for your next weekend away, exploring everything Australia has to offer. You never know, you might discover a new spot or two to visit. I acknowledge the Cadigal and the Wiradjuri people, traditional custodians of the land, that we recorded today's podcast episode on. I pay my respects to the elders past and present, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the nation. Welcome to the very first episode of Fine Vines and Wine. How exciting. And to kick it all off is Emma Norbiato, Chief Winemaker at Calabria Family Wines and one part of Hear Me Raw. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know it's a very busy time at the moment, so I really appreciate it. Hi, Karis. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm honoured to be part of your uh, first podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to learn more about Calabria Family Wines. Let's jump into some questions. What was your defining wine? moment I don't think I have a, a real defining penny dropping moment but there's been a couple of instances throughout my career that I think um, ignited my passion for wine and I remember when one of them is when I first started university so I was um, like about 18 or 19 and I enjoyed cooking and I didn't really know much about flavors in wine I remember the first time we did sensory analysis at uni I was like, wow, this is really interesting and really cool. We're tasting the acidity and um, saltiness and sweetness and all different parts of our palate in wine. And I was like, it really got me thinking about every time I tasted something about nailing those parts in my palate and appreciating yeah. all the flavours. Yeah, that was really cool. And then another time, I remember I worked at Penfolds for a little while when I was early in my career. I remember one Friday, Thursday afternoon, for no reason, my boss said, oh, we've just got Grange on the bench. Do you want to come and have a taste? I was like, Oh, wow, that's what? amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's been, it's been some really great experiences. I've travelled a lot with, uh, with my job um, and not just this role. So there's been lots of um, moments, I suppose, throughout it where um, being in the wine industry has really had some highlights, some really great stories and, um, yeah, Lots of great moments. Where's your favourite place that you've travelled to in terms um, of wine? In terms of wine, yeah. I worked in um, Italy when I was about 21 or 22 and I worked oh, in wow. Tuscany. And I worked with this fantastic uh, female winemaker. Her name's Francesca Quint. And she wanted to work desperately with an Australian winemaker. She loves Australia. So she employed me against the will of her bosses and we made um, like a lot of Sangiovese. So Brunello um, di Montalcino was where I was working and that was fantastic. Like you don't just learn about the wine industry but about their culture and um, yeah. so much to learn when you're travelling and working somewhere else. So yeah, that was fantastic. Oh my God, definitely. It sounds amazing. I'd love to travel and do sort of more wine regions other than Australia. I feel like my like wine love happened in Australia, so I haven't had any other experiences, but no, it'd be amazing to go somewhere else. And even like I'm originally from England and back in England, they're sort of getting into the winemaking industry as well. So that would be really cool to see. Profession for traveling because um, it is on a world platform and you can do vintages all over the world. And like, I couldn't speak Italian, but I could work in a winery there. So oh, great. wow. 
Yeah. So you weren't speaking, so you were still speaking English when you were working there or did you learn a little bit? I learned a little bit and the uh, Francesca could speak English and I learned the winery language like buckets and yeast and tank and, and all that stuff. I got very quickly lost in a conversation. So how long have you been working in wine? Because you said you were working there when you were 21, so I'm guessing it's been a while. Yeah, I just had to do the um, calculation then. So I... Uh, <laughs> from school to uni so and then from there I went straight to the wine industry like I started working straight away so it's 22 years that I've been um, working in the wine industry. Oh wow that's amazing and you're still loving it? Yeah I am because every year is different like every season is different every vintage is different and every year I can honestly say I learn something new which is great you never stop learning and I think the second you think, yeah, I've got this under control, Mother Nature throws you another curveball or the market changes or, you know, I never thought we'd be experimenting with low alcohol wines 20 years ago when we got started. So we're always learning. So um, I do still love it a lot. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I feel like out the alcohol industry has just come so far, especially with wine, like you were saying, with like low alcohol and non-alcoholic and like boxed wine kind of having a comeback again. It's all sort of changing which is great to see as well um so what's your most memorable moment that you've experienced during your wine journey i'm sure there's more than one but not it's gonna sort of sound like i'm blowing my own trumpet here but it's i'm not it's just an honest answer to the question is in um 2016 i was a finalist and i won the australian women in wine awards yeah and that um at that point in time i wasn't the chief winemaker here and i was working part-time i had I've got three kids and they were all little at that time and I was a finalist and I thought, oh, this is, this is amazing and I was up against some really great, uh, amazing other women as finalists mm. and I won the award, which was, I was like the, yeah, um, it was great. So that moment, I still remember that moment when um, they said that I was a winner, I was like, oh, my God, are you serious? Did, they, did someone make a mistake here? Um, but that moment was great because it gave me a lot of confidence. Coming out of that, a lot of um, younger women that I'd met throughout my time in the industry came forward and said, hey, um, I've always thought that you've done a really good job and I've looked up to you and I kind of thought, wow, I'm actually, um, there's a lot of people that were backing me, so it was quite nice. So someone nominated me and gave a, um, a reason why and then the board got together um, I think they did a bit of research on checking referees and perhaps tasting wines and then the board of the Australian Women in Wine Awards for the winner. So there wasn't, I didn't really have to do anything. Um, oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, which was even better. But it was more yeah. Uh, yeah, them uh, with uh, their research, I suppose, um, coming to the conclusion that they did. That's amazing So I kind of feel like that's so nice that they could see that and appreciate all the work that you've done and sort of could then um, celebrate that as well because I've heard um, there's other competitions like sommelier competitions where they have to try like different wines and do blind tastings and stuff so I wasn't sure if it was similar to that yeah uh, there's um, loads of different um, platforms for being a fight for that kind of stuff in Australia but for this one, um, yeah, I didn't have to do anything, but there's other things like the um, Evans tutorial, for example, you have to sit through a pretty grueling week in that 
to come out the other of tasting to come out the other end as the ducks which is you know but for me in this instance it was um yeah it was I didn't have to do anything so talking sort of about memorable moments um you were part of the collective hear me roar which i was found really really interesting i had like a little look on the website and was disappointed that i hadn't heard about it before because i really wanted to buy the wine too um do you have any future plans for this is there another wine release coming soon or anything like that jane thompson who's the um founder of the australian women in wine awards if that's her Mm -hmm. Thing. Uh, and she um, had this idea to get four uh, female winemakers to donate a couple of barrels of wine um, that made this wine called Hear Me Raw. And when that was sold, all the proceeds um, went towards um, providing another female in the industry an opportunity that they hadn't been able to come across or afford previously. So there's $37,000 sitting in a bank account. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, which is great. Everyone that was involved donated, which was great. Um, And there was lots of applications. And so the applications were, um, you know, I am an Orbeo. I've never worked in Tasmania, for example, and I really would like to do that for these reasons. Then that's how the application process went. But but they all involved travel. So COVID came, no one can travel. Um, So the money's just sitting there waiting until travel can resume and... um, the board can come up with, you know, whoever um, is lucky enough to get the money. And they've also got quite a good um, pay it forward, so you can't just take the money and go, on, go off on your merry way and do whatever you like. And you've sort of got to um, yeah. commit to um, mentoring. We're doing something in the industry to um, push women forward. So what's one of your favourite things about working with Calabria? Yeah, look, what's good for me um, about working here is have a lot of autonomy in what I do so um, I can certainly um, just get along and, and do my job without um, too many interruptions there's not a lot of red tape um, but it's also a very supportive company in terms of I have three children and um, my husband on high you know it's a bit of a juggling act so they're very supportive in um, terms of you know flexible hours and working arrangements and stuff like that. So while I've been here, I've had two lots of maternity leave and um, I've worked every combination of part-time and full-time and weekends and they've just always managed to fit it in and make it work for me. So um, it's really lovely that I can still do my role, be a chief winemaker, but... uh, Sipping. So one of the things that I love about Calabria is that they have such a wide range of wines that all taste amazing. Um, Plus, whenever they launch something new, it's always so, so good. What process goes into creating a new range? Like, are you involved in that? And um, also, are there any other plans to launch something different? Because I know that you've just launched the boxed wine. Um, Are you looking at doing non-alcoholic or low-alcoholic wines? Uh, We've always got new projects on the go. So there's a couple of ways to answer this question. Uh, the first thing is Andrew Calabria, who is one of the owners, or Bill's son. So Bill is the yeah. owner. Bill's son, Andrew, um, he's a real entrepreneur. So he's, Emma, we've got to make this new crazy fandangle wine, get your team together and project happening on that. And so because of his drive and his passion, there's always new projects on the go. Um, some of them are like a low alcohol. So we've we've done some research and we've got a couple of recipes poised ready to know what we 
can and can't do should we want to launch a low alcohol or mm-hmm. uh, some you know flavored moscatos or whatever it is that um, Andrew wants us to do and secondly the second stream of that is that a lot of winemakers are very creative so there's some people in the team that I work with that are really creative and that are interested in making skin contact or pet nut wines and um, things like that so every year there's always a couple of winemaking trials where some of the team leave a Trebbiano on skins or, you know, do something that's not the norm and we might make, you know, a small quantity of that and then show it to Andrew and Andrew will say, oh, no, I don't really want to go with that or I do want to go with that and we might create a new product that way. So um, it's good that we can enable a bit of creativity within the winemakers. Um, those projects don't always get off the ground but um, we certainly uh, keep having a go and then, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, Andrew throws us a project and it, it may or may not work. So there's always always innovation here. Talking again about Banter Box, which is the boxed wine and sort of boxed wine is making a bit of a comeback because I do remember the first time I had boxed wine was when I first moved here. I was 18 um, and I used to mix it with lemonade because it was so disgusting. It was sort of a thing you just drink to get drunk and then go on a night out. Um, Is the process of creating a boxed wine similar to in a bottle or is there some differences? Because I mean, we had Banter Box on the weekend. We had some friends over and it was amazing like it tasted exactly like how it does out of a bottle but obviously there's yep. more so that's great as well. Bill's motto and Michael and Andrew have always been to over deliver. What we're putting into Bantabox needs to over deliver in its market and it is yep. um, very close or similar to what goes into bottles so for us it's not the um, dumping ground of whatever doesn't work it's its own um, point bespoke made we're making this much um or Pinot Grigio or whatever it is for Bantabox and it's a very thoughtful um, process to make that. It's certainly not. I used to work in the large winery making cask and it was like, oh, bottom of the run, we'll just put it down there and forget about it. It's not like that yeah. here. It's um, a thoughtful, driven process to make that wine as we would where it yeah. being, you know, our top end iconic. So there's no no differentiation, no distinction. So it's the same wine that you would use in bottles, or it's a slight, so it's or it's made slightly differently. Uh, no, it is made the same, but it might not always be the exact same blend. But it is made the same, okay. uh, simply because of um, tank sizes and very, you know, that kind of stuff. It might not always be the exact same as what's in bottle, but um, the exact same blend or wine. But it's certainly made the same if that makes sense it might not be the exact same grapes for example but it's made the same way yeah no that makes sense um i'm gonna skip forward a couple of questions and then go backwards um do you have a favorite range from the calabria family wines collection and why a couple of different wines that i love from our collection for different reasons so we've got um shiraz carignan in the um saint patrie range and that's a really um, lovely wine. It's very small. Um, the Carignan comes in from the Barossa and we often have to, like, hand plunge it and, um, you know, it's really gets back to, like, traditional winemaking and so that's really cool. But then in the Three Bridges range there's um, a Grenache, a Mavedra and a Shiraz. Uh, um, well, there's lots of different wines, but in that range they uh, really over-deliver, so... 
for example, that's what we drink at home quite often or um, I take to people's places and they never they never underdeliver. People, you know, always love them. And in that range, we've got a Chardonnay, which I love. We've got a Grenache, which is really medium-bodied, and I love that. And same with the Levedra. They're just really interesting, layered, textural wines. Probably the Three Bridges range would be my pick, to be honest. What do you think the wine industry will see more or less of in 2021? I mean, obviously 2020 was a massive year with the bushfires and then also COVID hitting. I think because of COVID, you know, this is just me with a gut feel, there's Mm. probably a few more um, feel-good purchases coming from consumers, like they... um, might choose to shop local now or, um, you know, sustainable or do something that feels like they're giving back because of the sort of reset that happened with COVID in the world perhaps. So I think the push for um, Australians to drink Australian wine could be stronger, which will be great, and also Australians to drink, um, to make a purchase that they feel good about. Um, they're supporting, you know, their own country or industry. Or and then I also think within the wine industry, we're evolving very quickly. So I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, an increase in things that you don't normally see in wine. Like if you, for example, as I said before, when I first started, I would never have dreamt that low alcohol or zero alcohol wine would be a thing. But now there's examples out there. And they're growing. A lot of people are drinking kombucha and that, you know, kind of sector is growing really rapidly. What does that mean for the wine industry? I think perhaps we need to become a bit more innovative in that space and go, this is not just a Shiraz, this is interesting because of these reasons or, you know, you feel good when you drink kombucha because you feel like you're doing something right for yourself. So what wine makes you feel good when you purchase? So I think that um, part of the wine industry we haven't really focused on. It hasn't been a part of us for a while, but I, I do think that that is an opportunity if it, if someone can nail it. Yeah, no, definitely, because I, I feel like now... I find that I always want to buy, when I'm buying a wine, I'll always buy something a bit different or something that I've never had before and never experienced because I want to try something new. So, And I think a lot of people are doing that. So, yeah, it's kind of cool to see people like going out of their comfort zones and not just getting like their standard Shiraz or their standard Pinot Grigio or their standard Rosé and going for something like a Pet Nat or an orange or a skin contact wine. Even I think you will see more alternate varieties in play, like, you know, people might want to try something other than Shiraz on the road. We've got a um, Monte Pulciano in our Vantabox range, which is just a, an interesting, you know, it's a not-too-expensive platform to introduce someone to Monte Pulciano that's never had it before. So yeah. um, if you don't love it, you haven't paid $50 a bottle for it, which is, I think, a, exactly. we might be starting to look in that direction a little bit. Yeah, no, it's a great way for people to try stuff because, I mean, the banter box is $13.99. So it's, yeah, the perfect way. And if they don't like it, then it's not the end of the world, but it's a good way to try. And yeah. also to get their friends to try it too because I guess with the banter box, it's sort of, it's something you use to celebrate or it's something you take to a barbecue. So it's a great way for a whole heap of people to try something. And then some people might love it and then go and buy a $50 bottle, but some people might like something else. So, you know, I think that's a great way to yeah. try a new wine. What wines are you drinking right now? Is there anything that you're loving at the moment? From our range, and we've got a rosé in the Richland range and we've got a rosé in the um, Pierre de Amour range. And over summer in our climate, 
they are just fantastic by the pool and yeah. um, sitting outside and there's a lot of barbecue kind of weather. So I would say rosé at the minute and yes. probably <laughs> rosé into autumn. It would probably be Chardonnay. Is there a particular Chardonnay that you drink? I'm I'm not a massive fan of Chardonnay. I do like the um, Kings of Prohibition Chardonnay. That's actually one of the only ones that I like. Um, but I am a bit funny about it, with the, especially the super oaky ones. So if there's yeah, one you can recommend. That's great to hear about Kings of Prohibition. I like the Three Bridges Chardonnay, but it has got a bit more oak than uh, Kings of Prohibition. But we still try and make it reasonably paired at back. It's not um, overt in any way. So that's my pick. I don't yeah. – I'd be interested to know if you like it so as well what wines are you not really enjoying at the moment are there any styles that you sort of tend to avoid a little bit i'm really easy going there's not many wines that i won't appreciate um mm. or enjoy and there's always a wine for every occasion so sure i might not be drinking a heavy shiraz now but i will be in winter so there's not many wines that i um steer clear from that's good no i find that before I started this whole wine journey, I was very against Chardonnay, very against Sauv Blanc. But as I'm like getting more into it, like for example, last night, my friend and I had a couple of glasses of an organic Semillon, which normally I'd be like, oh no, I definitely won't have that. We'll have a bottle of rosé, but I was like pleasantly surprised. So no, I think it's a good way to be. I need to be a bit more open and try yeah, different and ones. I completely agree. And as you go along the journey and you learn to appreciate um, every wine that's out there and you stop and you think what was this winemaker trying to do or there is something in every wine that you can appreciate I I do believe that what's your favorite food and wine pairing yeah I'm a little bit funny like this I'm not very strict with food and wine pairings and I just think like if you're having pasta and you feel like champagne then do it and I think if I look back and think about you know my history and moments in wine it's actually been about the occasion and the company. So I'm a very strong advocate for if you have a great wine in your cellar, don't wait to drink it. Next time there's an occasion, like you have a child's christening or 23rd, whatever it is, it can be a Saturday night is an occasion, whatever it is, just drink it because wine's made to drink. So I don't get really, um, I personally don't get wound up in um, food matchings and pairings and timelines and stuff. I'm like, if you feel like drinking it tonight, then go for it. There's no doubt sometimes you're having a steak and a, and a red will go really well with it or if you're having it, um, you know, a, something Thai and a Riesling will go well with it. There's no doubt that that works well. And so there are those classic pairings that you probably just lean towards but if there is a um, something happening, I think wine's about the occasion, um, and that's why we make wine. It's about the occasion, bringing people together and creating those moments where you know you connect with your family, or your friends, or whatever it is. So that's probably what we're I'm about a bit more anyway. You know, I love that. I think that's awesome. Um, do you have a favourite bottle that you've had? at a specific occasion in uh when i worked in italy there was i don't even remember the wine it could have been from a cask or a carafe but it was a um we were sitting outside in tuscany and it was up on a hill looking over the rest of the uh, valley and i was with great company and the wine it was a red wine and it was fantastic but it was all about the moment and the people that were there rather than that particular wine itself and then we've got um Within my family, my my dad's um, favourite wine was Grenache. So every Christmas we open a Grenache and we've done that until there's no bottles left and that's fine. We don't have any left but 
we've enjoyed yeah. drinking them every year anyway. So that's probably a nice wine memory to have. So the last question that I have is from Calabria's extensive wine collection. Um, what wine would you take to A, a dinner party, B, a barbecue, and C, save for a rainy day? For a dinner party, I would choose something from the Three Bridges range because that's quite quite a good crowd pleaser delivers. So depending on the time of the year, it'd be a Grenache or a Shiraz or a Chardonnay. A barbecue would either be a Rosé or a Prosecco. Um, so the Calabria Parking Prosecco or the Rosés that I mentioned earlier. And a rainy day would probably be something St. Patrice range, which would be the St. Patrice Shiraz Carignan or um, the Grenache Shiraz Nevedra. I feel like people always struggle when you are going to a dinner party and you're just like, what do I take or a barbecue? So it's kind of nice to hear what the winemakers would take and then give people some inspiration. Yeah. But I think the thing is that there's um, wine can be so intimidating with what you just said there. What do I take to a, this person's party? And people always say to me, what do I take to a winemaker's house? What wine do I take? Mm. And I'm like... It's okay. There's there's no rules. Just take whatever you think. It's it's um I think we need to break a few of those intimidating barriers that exist and get get people less intimidated about wine and worrying about the wrongs and the rights and just uh, enjoy it. Yeah, I agree. I feel like that's the same as well when sometimes when you go into a bottle shop and something you always get and that regular one isn't there, I feel like people get really stuck and they're just like, oh my gosh, there's so much choice and it's so overwhelming. We kind of need to just, if you see the bottle you like, just go for it. Yeah, and there is there is a lot of choice. You're right. Mm. And thank you so much for coming on as well. I really appreciate you being the first guest and everything like that, especially during this very busy season. You're welcome. Well, it's my first podcast too, so... Um... Hopefully you did a very good job. Yeah, not too badly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe and share with your friends. I'll see you next week for another closer look into the wine industry. Now go and grab that glass of wine. You deserve it.